Amen. Harvest, our passage today is going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. It's the word of God for the people of God. And God's people said... Praise be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray this morning. Uh, Father, we do pause, uh, certainly not as a mechanism of transition or a religious uh, or ritual, but hopefully it's a genuine pause of prayer that acknowledges we need you. In this time, in this space, we need the power of your spirit to illuminate your word, uh, to apply your word, to approximate your word into our lives, that through it, And the power of your word, God, that you would shape us and mold us more and more into the image of Christ. And so to that end, uh, we labor and pray in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Jamie. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor and elder here at Harvest Church. And excited to, to be here as we transition from what's been our exposition of Titus over these last few months into a series of Advent messages. Uh, this being really a two-part message, part one this week, we're looking at these angel, the, the angel's pronouncement to the shepherds of the birth of Christ. And then next week, looking into a diversity of responses to the reality that God had come to earth. Now, as we move into this Advent season and walk alongside of each other, I'll tell you, I've been blessed uh, the, these past few weeks through the very Advent resources we've made available at Connection Central, especially the family ones. So if you don't have a tradition or rhythm that you're used to and you're kind of looking for what to do this year, maybe you've never done anything, which is certainly the boat I was in for a long time, uh, the, the one we're offering this year, especially for families, has been particularly meaningful in the Trussell household. So if you're looking for something, I do as a, an experiential endorsement uh, uh, exhort you to that end. Now, what's shameful to admit uh, that it wasn't until I married Shanna and uh, we began, God kindly uh, giving us a family, uh, Advent readings were never something I did, ever, for 20 plus years of being a Christian. Weren't important to me. Uh, honestly, for most of my life, couldn't have even told you what Advent meant. Some of you may be in that boat this morning, but you don't want to ask. It just means coming. So the Advent season is the season of our Lord's coming. His second advent is his second coming. It's what we're waiting on. Now his glorious return. And and whether it's me trying to make up lost time or not, I have been saturating myself in advent readings lately. There are multiple advent devotionals. And I found one this week that I didn't know existed that really blessed me. It was written by a a great Christian thinker, uh, a pastor, a a writer, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I thought a, a particular portion of it was applicable to us. This morning, I'm going to read that to you and listen to his words as he begins to focus in on the Advent season, saying this, Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? 
Well, the answer is whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism, and lays it beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? It's an important question, isn't it? Because the question in and of itself implies that you can do so incorrectly. Now what is the dividing line? What's the distinguishing factor that he's illuminating for us in that small quote? And that is this, the dividing line between celebrating Christmas correctly and incorrectly is one singular word, humility. Humility being thinking of ourselves properly. And the only way to think of ourselves properly is to have proper thoughts of who we are in light of who God is and what he has done. For what Bonhoeffer is trying to get us to see is the humility of God was never on more display than when the high king of heaven took on flesh as an infant. And it is the picture of God in the manger that should shatter all of our arrogance. So how do we celebrate Christmas correctly? By posturing ourselves in the pattern of the God in the manger. It says seeing God particularly in his lowliness. Now, lowliness is uh, prominent in our passage because as we will see, lowliness was a stature that accompanied shepherds on an ongoing basis. Let's look at our text, Luke chapter 2, verse 8 says this, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. Now this first verse situates our passage in two ways, situates us geographically and it situates us demographically. Now what do we mean by that? Geographically, it lets us know where we are. And that's not a minor detail as we will come to learn. Now, we don't know with 100% certainty the exact location of these shepherds, but we do know with great certainty that they are close to Bethlehem. They are in and around the city. It says in the same region. So that's the geographic situation of the passage. But not only are we situated geographically, we're situated demographically. Now, what do you mean by that? The audience of the pronouncement are shepherds and shepherds are vocational lower class outsiders and it is to this group that the angel comes making this pronouncement the angel lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear and i think we could say reasonably so Fear probably birthing from two places. The first, the scene in and of itself. Imagine uh, your first century shepherd, you are in a pitch black night. You're taking a shifts, watching over the sheep, protecting the sheep, and that darkness is pierced by the glory of God in all of its splendor, in all of its brightness. And not only that, it's accompanied by an angel making a verbal pronouncement to you. Fear would be a proper response. But that's not the only place I think fear comes from. 
for these shepherds. I think the second place fear arises in them is a fear similar to that of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. For when he was thrust into the presence of the Lord, he says, Woe is me, I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. When sinful people are thrust into the presence of a holy God, it makes their situation that much clearer. And the shepherds know they're unclean. They know their sin. And when they are placed in the presence of God, they are keenly aware that they are not worthy to be there. And fear grips them because what should follow is their destruction. For they cannot dwell in the presence of God. And fear being the natural response, it's noteworthy to see the care of God in the angel's words where he says, fear not. Fear not, but they should be afraid. Fear not. Right, and the antidote to their fear is the reality that the angel says, I bring you what? Good news. I'm not bringing a message of your condemnation. I'm not bringing you a message of your destruction. I'm bringing you a message of good news. Now we pause here because we need to note that good news is not originally a Christian idea. Now it is where we get our modern use and idea of the word evangelism. It comes from the same root word that good news comes from. But good news in a first century Roman context would have most normally been associated as a military idea. So what would happen is if a battle was won, or the commander or the king, the emperor, whomever it may be, would send out messengers to all the cities, to all the towns, to all the regions. And those messengers carried with them what was called good news. And that good news had some components to it. And it was this. Victory has been won. The enemy's been defeated. The battle is over. You don't have to live in fear anymore. So when the angel comes and tells these shepherds, I have good news for you, and that good news is associated with this child in a manger, what the angel is telling them is, through this child, victory is coming. Through this child, the enemy is going to be defeated because of this child in this manger. You do not have to fear anymore. Fear not, for I bring you good news. Now, if you're like me, and I hope you're not, but if you are, this picture of the shepherds and the angel, if you've been at church in any length of time, is a pretty familiar scene for us. We've seen it. We've seen it illustrated. We've seen people set it up in their houses. It's in Christmas ornaments. It's, we've heard the story. We've done all of these things. And its familiarity can be to our detriment. And hopefully as a way, if God's kind to us, to knock the familiarity out of us and maybe bring some awe and worship back 
into my heart and maybe yours, it's going to be helpful, I think, to revisit what we mentioned earlier, this geographic and demographic component that is vital to understanding this text. Okay, so we mentioned earlier, geographically they're close to Bethlehem and demographically they're shepherds. Now why uh, do I stress that this morning? Uh, Well, the shepherds that worked in and outside of Bethlehem were a unique group. Bethlehem was this epicenter for going and getting your sacrificial lambs for the temple. And so to be a shepherd in and around Bethlehem meant you were, in a sense, a priestly type shepherd. You were raising the animals that would be taken into the temple, whose blood would be spilled to make atonement for sin. Right, as a symbol of man being reconciled back to God. And so you knew the animals you were raising were being raised for a singular glorious purpose and yet those shepherds in and around Bethlehem their lives were steeped in irony because of their very work of dealing with dirty animals they themselves were continually made ceremonially unclean so they're raising the animals that would help make others pronounced clean But the work in and of itself makes them continually unclean. And so they, on an ongoing basis, were not even able to enter into the temple where their very animals were being sacrificed. And because of that, because of that stigma, because of that stereotype of unclean shepherds, they begin to develop a bit of a reputation of being irreligious of being untrustworthy, of always being on the outside looking in, but not this night. On this night, in the fields outside of Bethlehem, maybe even the same fields that centuries before, a little shepherd boy named David, who would be anointed king, was watching over his flocks. On this night, it is to shepherds that the angel says, a greater David and a greater king has come. When I sit back and I think, what would it have been like to be one of those shepherds? You're always on the outside looking in and then all of a sudden, you are God's chosen audience for the single greatest pronouncement in human history. What's going through your mind? What are you feeling? What are the emotions associated with it? And you begin to travel from the field to the manger where the angel tells them to go. And I've got to think, uh, well, we don't know the answer, obviously. It's pure conjecture and what's going through their mind. I have to assume that they are fixated in some way on what the angel just said is going to be a sign for you. Right now, what is that sign? Look at it with me. Our passage, verse 12, says this. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, to you and me, that's fairly unremarkable. It doesn't mean much. Right? If you've uh, ever been privileged to, to, to have a child, and you, you know, you swaddle them when they're born. Big deal. 
It's pretty functional. Makes them feel like they're still tucked in mama's womb so they don't cry as much. But it wasn't like that for these shepherds. Swaddling cloths and a manger was a massive sign to them because they knew for their entire lives when they had new lambs born, do you know what they did? They would swaddle the lambs in cloths and they would take these lambs and they would place them in mangers. Now, I'm not telling you you have to go home and take it down, but most likely the nativity scene that you have up in your house and maybe even on our stage over here uh, are probably not that historically accurate. A manger uh, uh, was most likely uh, maybe a cave type setting. It was hewn out stone, maybe the bottom floor of a house. Uh, but he probably wasn't in the barn out back. And it's important because shepherds put their lambs in cloths and put them in these mangers for one singular purpose to protect these lambs from injuring themselves or being injured by one another. Why? Because one day these lambs would be inspected. And these lambs would be inspected to see if they had a blemish on them or if they could be an acceptable sacrifice. So when the angel says, shepherds, there's a baby boy and he's swaddled in cloths and he's in a manger, this picture becomes beautifully clear for them. The boy is where the lambs are. And the great Old Testament question of Isaac, daddy, where is the lamb? is answered in Luke chapter 2. The angel says, the boy is where the lambs are. And when the shepherds get there, they see the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world because this lamb too would be inspected. He too would be tried. And he would be found perfect and qualified to make the final sacrifice for all of our sins. Fear not, good news, great joy. He's swaddled in cloths, he's lying in a manger, and yet, as we've mentioned familiarity a couple times this morning, the picture of Jesus in a manger too has become familiar. And God in the manger has maybe lost some of its bite. You know, prayers to sweet baby Jesus and nativity scenes can kind of rob it of its power. And what may help that this morning is to look at another time when God revealed and presented himself to his people. Because in Luke 2, we have God presented as an infant. Yet in Exodus 19, we have God presented to the nation on Mount Sinai in a much different way. And I think when we see these two things juxtaposed against one another, God and the manger may come home to us with a little more power and a little more worship. Now I'm going to ask you to meet me there. And look, you know I don't usually do this. We don't usually cross-reference. 
certainly not to this extent. But I'm going to read a lengthy passage from Exodus 19. And I just want you to watch the way in which God reveals himself to his people. And begin thinking about the differences in that scene and the one we've just read about in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 of Exodus 19. Hear this. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care, do not go up into the mountain or touch it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds, a long blast, they'll come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain and told the people, consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to them, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. He's just telling them to stay clean. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, imagine. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the trumpet sounded, it grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top, and Moses went up. And yet the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. So the Lord said to him, go down, bring up Aaron, but do not let the priests and people break through and come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. It's a little bit of a different picture of God revealing himself. Both Exodus 19 and Luke 2, both true, but both very different. Let's look at some of those differences together the first is this repeatedly in Exodus 19 God says keep your distance says keep your distance in Luke chapter 2 God says come to the side of the crib see the light of the world touch him Hold him. Embrace him. In Exodus 19, God says this. Consecrate yourselves. Purify yourself. Uh, Put yourself in a ceremonially clean state. For you're about to see God in all his purity and all his holiness. Clean yourselves up. And in Luke chapter 2, the angel tells the shepherds, Come as you are, and all your filth, and all your stench, in every way you've been told you're unclean, the angel says, come. In Exodus 19, God says, purify yourself. In Luke chapter 2, God says, come to the side of the one who will make you pure. 
In Exodus 19, God says, consecrate yourselves. In Luke chapter 2, God says, come and kneel beside the consecrated one. Okay, but not only those things, and not only did God tell them to keep their distance, God tells them to keep their distance for a particular reason. God says, keep your distance from the mountain because to come into my presence means your death and your destruction, for I am completely other than you. In Luke chapter 2, God says, come near to me because coming near is not your destruction, but this child brings life. And in a sense of irony, it is only by the death of this child that one day true life will flow again. Okay, not only does he say, keep your distance, not only say, consecrate yourself, not only say that coming near will bring your destruction. In Exodus 19, when God appears, it is loud. It is violent. It is thunder. It is lightning, fire, smoke, earthquake, people shaking, God's voice booming like thunder. And in Luke chapter 2, when the shepherds get to that manger... They find a silent, cold, still night whose silence is only broken by the cry of an infant. An infant who would grow up into a man and would cry again in the silence and stillness of Calvary. And that cry would say, it is finished. And so we see in Exodus 19 the picture of the transcendent, all-powerful God. And in Luke chapter 2, we see the eminence or the nearness that that God has come to earth. And he says, come. Come to the manger. Come kneel beside this infant child that says, fear not. This is good news. You know, I hesitated to share this next part. You know, my wife and I have several friends that have uh, unfortunately had to battle with infertility. Some of you are here this morning. And that's not lost on us, the struggle that that must be. And I say that just so you know that uh, that's not uh, lost on me uh, as I share this next part. But for whatever reason, certainly not because my wife and I deserve it, but... About five weeks ago, uh, we uh, were able to hold our fourth kiddo in our arms. All right, now I'm going to be honest with you. Finally, on the fourth one, I was a little more spiritual than the previous three. Right? So I remember somebody telling me, you know, when your first kid's born, you know what it was for the father to love the son. I remember holding my first kid and going, mm-mm. I mean, I love him, I think, but... Uh, but maybe being so close to Advent season this year, uh, uh, thinking about holding it. And look, whether it's been your child or someone else as a friend or family, here's something that is indispensably true about an infant. Babies disarm us. They don't threaten us. And when you hold that little child, you are struck with the innocence and purity of their existence. Fear is gone. There's this comfort that washes over you. 
And in Luke chapter 2, God in the manger should disarm you a little bit. The fact that God would come in such a way that he could be taken into the arms and held to ultimately bring innocence and purity into our lives. Ultimate hope. For it's in this picture of holding God as a baby that we should be reminded that God too holds us with a grasp in which he will never let us go. And if that is true of us, then the way the angel closes this passage also is true of us. Peace upon those with whom God is well pleased. Peace with those to whom God is pleased. Now that implies God is not pleased with everyone. So how do you get the pleasure of the Lord? How do you get this peace that the angel talks about in Luke chapter 2? Well, it's by uh, repentance and faith. It's repenting of our sins and placing our faith alone in Christ as life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we don't need to be afraid of him. He came as a baby. He disarms us a little bit. But when we hear peace, you've got to think about it biblically. Because culturally considered, all peace means in our day and age is an absence of conflict. That's not the biblical idea of peace. When the angel proclaims peace, the angel is proclaiming completeness. It's proclaiming wholeness. Utter restoration. And what the angel is saying, the only singular person that can bring any of that back into the created order, into our lives, is Jesus Christ, this child that was born. In fact, so much so, he's talked about in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is this. He's described, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of... Amen. And the word peace there is shalom, completeness and wholeness. It's only through this child, God in the manger, that mankind can be restored in completeness back to God, restored to one another. It's only through this child that, that marriage, friendship, parenting, work, finances, anything can operate the way it's supposed to be. And some of us this morning, the peace of Christ does not reign supreme. But it is available. That God paid the price of his son to make that open and available to all. If we would just bow our knees and come, confessing our sins in faith, and God in the flesh, Christ our Lord. And for those of us that God has been kind enough to bring unto himself. It's because of this peace that we can with such joyful voices sing or now read. Hail the heaven born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, 
born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray.